Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 55 of the Fitness Devil Podcast. We've got Brad Dieter and James Krieger on today. Uh, we brought them both back and paired them up, and Guido gives Brad an endless amount of abuse, so you may actually want to stick around just for that alone. This one's a really great episode on a lot of nutrition. We get into the spe- special claims behind a lot of the current fad diets and where these things come from and why they they aren't really true. We go into high fructose corn syrup or fructose in general, a lot of the myths and misinformation surrounding that and why that's not bad for you, unless you consume astonishingly high levels of it. Uh, We get into James's quote, not all reps are created equal and how some reps matter more than others. Brad once said BMR and RMR might be the most useless piece of data for most people who are striving for weight loss. We get an explanation of that discussion. And we get into their both of their reputations as true nice guys about ethics and making good decisions in our industry. Thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy it. Shut up and sit down. Hi, guys. Uh, today we've got two returning guests from previous episodes. They're good friends, and we got them together, Brad Dieter and James Krieger. These guys aren't just prominent figures in the fitness industry, but uh, they're also researchers contributing to our knowledge base in exercise physiology, nutritional science. Um, yeah, and they're frequent collaborators. Like I said, they're friends. So we wanted to bring them back together. Guys, welcome back, and uh, we're curious what you guys have been up to most recently. Uh, yeah, thanks for having us first, guys. So We'll let James uh, go first. He's, he's more important. um well what i've been up to lately other than uh other than engaging in a bunch of defense of some research that uh um brad schoenfeld and i published uh um i don't know i've just been uh actually brad and brad dieter and i've been working together we actually got a, a study just going underway now so uh um, we're, we're working behind the scenes on that along with Eric Helms. We've got a little study going on now. Uh, it's going to be looking at, uh, um, uh, how, uh, basically the idea of, of, you know, how much of a surplus do you need to optimize muscle growth? You know, because obviously too much of a surplus, you just get, you know, a bunch of fat gain. Um, but you know, what's a good level, you know, is it, uh, and so we got a couple different surplus levels we're going to look at and stuff. So, so just, just started the recruiting for that, that, uh, and that study is just going underway. So, so yeah, we've been working on that. That'll actually be really valuable to know. I look forward to that. We'll have, yeah. and we'll be hanging out with Eric Helms in about three weeks here because he's coming to Edmonton as part of this, uh, local event, L2 Fitness. And we've mentioned it before him, Sohi Lee, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, and now Martin McDonald has been added to it. So I'm actually really excited to meet Martin because he's someone I've looked up to for a while. So we'll have Eric here and that should be great. What about you, Brad? What have you been up to? Oh, I'm uh, just winding down about a whole month of travel for work, which is one of those things that always just feels like it kills you because um, you're traveling, you're tired, you don't actually get any work done. Um, and <laughs> Wrapping up some work in a lab here and then transitioning um, and then got a bunch of studies in the queue. The, the study James and I are working on um, really should be called the Eric Helms study because I have been less than helpful the last two weeks. So we'll, have, we'll give him all that credit. So, yeah, yeah, he's he's running all the he, he's doing all the, the really hard work on it. So we're, we're yeah. just kind of we're just kind of piggybacking on it a little bit. So 
Yeah, so we're um, we're gearing up for January. We our our company. We just hired a bunch of software developers, so I've been trying to coordinate them and, and get all that stuff ready to go. So we're just trying to get through the fall, and get ready for January. It's basically a bunch of scientist stuff. You guys work out still? I know Brad. <laughs> we're on video. We're on video, so we, we can see Brad's gains. We, we were at this. We were at a conference a couple weeks ago, and I told Jay, the guy who organized it, we should have just changed the name to the Gaslighting Brad Dieter Conference because that's pretty much all it was. The whole time. Why is that? Like everyone makes fun of you on Facebook. I don't know. I don't get offended by things, so I just let it go. You should stand up to them, Brad. Like just one one day, like have like Eminem just released a new album. It's kind of the same thing. Like you just let it slide. And then he but, went like completely crazy and called it everyone. So like we'll all wait yeah, for it. Yeah, actually, Brad, you should just go Lyle McDonald on everybody. <laughs> I mean, if I'm never gonna have a rebuttal. I'm just gonna write about. We'll put out. I think if you have enough of a following, you'll sell like at least a thousand. <laughs> <laughs> that would make. That would like do all right on Spotify. Mm. We'd pump uh, it. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's. Get, we brought you guys on because, again, you guys really are great on the nutrition side of stuff. So uh, in various corners of the fitness industry uh, and the diet side of the, our industry, um, we have professionals and what I like to call pseudo-professionals. They latch onto and sell nutritional ideologies and diets. Um, they usually laud the special properties of their chosen dietary religion. And they can sometimes even cite research supporting their ideas. Uh, we see this with paleo, you know, get out of my face, uh, keto, intermittent fasting, and even more extreme versions of fasting. Would you guys tackle the basic special claims behind each of those diets, where these claims come from, and the evidence that generally refutes them? People always talk about this stuff, so I figured it'd be a good chance to go after these things. Yeah, I mean, so there's kind of one fundamental underlying principle behind a lot of this stuff, right? It, it's how you view evidence and how you think about science. So... Fundamentally, science is really about dis finding evidence to disprove your idea, right? If you have a thought process and a hypothesis that you want to test, you can find a million ways to support it. Um, but really, if you find one piece of evidence that says it's incorrect, you kind of have to toss it out and move on to the next one, right? So you can always find – I mean you can make up any sort of dietary approach and say it's better than something else and find some evidence to support it. Um, but – you also have to then look for what would disprove it. And then when you find something that disproves it, you kind of have to acknowledge that and then move on. I think the problem, though, is that doesn't sell books, right? Um, I mean, you can look at – I mean, just look at people who have kind of gone through the full spectrum of you know, selling paleo books. And then you know, that kind of ran its course. And then they sold you know, keto reset books, and, and that's going to run its course. Uh, and then there will be something else to sell that's, you know, a very easily marketable idea. Yeah, um, to tag on to what Brad just said, too, um, there, you're also dealing with, uh, I think, an aspect of human nature, which um, people want. Well, I think a few things are at play there. Number one, I think people want to somehow I think there's a lot of people that may want to almost feel like uh, superior in a way, like almost like a little bit like, well, you know, they almost make their dietary approach a little bit of their identity. 
And it almost makes them feel maybe a little bit above other people say, hey, you know, my you know, way I eat is so much better than how other people eat. And, you know, um, so I think there's a little bit of that psychology at play, uh, you know, not with everyone, but certainly with some aspects of it. Um, I also think that it appeals in the human nature of people wanting to have some idea that there is some magical thing about some approach, you know, that, you know, there's something that everybody else is missing and nope, this approach has it, right? And so I I think there's a little bit that psychology at play too, um, why people tend to latch onto particular um, uh, groups. And and really, I mean, it's just, you know, it's kind of a dietary tribalism, you know, in a sense. Um, And we actually, I think we talked about that, I think in the Last time I was on yeah. with you guys, I think we talked about mm-hmm. tribalism a little yep. bit. So, do. do you think it's getting better or worse? And the reason why is because as more people get more informed, they should almost start to think, "Hey, the quick fix isn't the way." But that's not necessarily happening as much. So, is it getting better or worse with more information? I think the I think there's more people in the middle now than there ever have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also think that there are. I think the extreme ends are getting more extreme. Yeah. Right. I think. I mean, I almost just look at it like, for example, like a Facebook algorithm, right, of what shows up on your feed is you kind of end, enter this valley of you just continue to get further and further down one stream of thought. So I think there's there's more people in the middle um, who are starting to understand a lot of these things. But I also think the, the end of the bell curve is also getting more extreme. Like I think a lot of these behaviors are starting to become more and more extreme. I don't At least that's. That's what I see. I, I also think the people on the extremes are the loudest. Yeah. And so they're, they're the ones that get the most attention. And so, so if you're, let's say, a newcomer who's never, let's say you're, you're, you've got a blank slate about nutrition and stuff, the people that you're going to hear the most are the people that are the loudest. And I mean, I think you see that in, I mean, you see that in politics too. There's a lot yeah. of people that are in the middle of the road for politics, but that's not, that's not what you hear. You hear about the, you know, the people on the extremes, those are the people that, that, that are the loudest sometimes. So I think that plays a role too. I think you could use a, a example right now with, uh, the way you're seeing images of people burning their Nikes after this Colin Kaepernick thing. And, and I don't care to speak on that whole thing. I think it's an overblown thing on both ends of the spectrum, but you would, you would think that there are people all over the, the country burning their Nikes what I'm guessing this is actually a fairly isolated thing and and the people going on about this on both sides are again the extremists the ones freaking out about it but the ones also are actually doing this stupid shit yeah yeah I think that'll be short-lived there's one good meme on it was like when people realize not the priest one but there was another one about Chuck Taylors so like Nike owns Chuck Taylors and like no one's burning their Chucks like ah we'll end it at just the Nike stuff <laughs> Like people, that actually would play into the whole extreme part, though, because people will do keto and stuff until they're like, till they kind of figure out the truth, and then they kind of hopefully fall back in the middle. But I don't know, the crazies will still—I shouldn't say crazies—the extremists will still be extreme at the end of the day, always. You know, and we're seeing more extreme things now with dietary ideologies. And I think you could say, well, we here in Edmonton, we don't normally say his name, but uh, I fuck, I'm not gonna say his name. But there's a guy who promotes some extreme fasting craziness, and that is about as extreme as shit gets. Uh, I think the carnivore diet's pretty extreme stuff now, and you're seeing that more and more. Uh, <laughs> the problem like, is it works short term. So like people again, like you said, yeah. want the quick fix, the psychology behind it. 
And once they get that quick fix, they're almost reinforced instantly for it. So why wouldn't they do it again? Like, especially if they're ignorant to like a wealth of knowledge, like they know that it worked and they'll just continue doing that until, well, I don't know. I don't know when they stops, it stops, it doesn't stop. I, yeah. But the, and the problem with that though, is because once it stops working, uh, I mean, I, I saw this a while back when zero carb was really popular, right? I mean, because people would go low carb and then all of a sudden they'd hit a plateau, right? And so then they would think, oh, I just need to decrease my carb intake even more, right? And then they'd finally go zero carb and then they still wouldn't be making progress and they're like, oh, you, you can't go negative carb. <laughs> so it's like, you know, what, what are you going to do? You know, it's like, <laughs> so. I saw Brad was adding something in. I don't know, it, your voice cut out. You got it's, muted. Uh, it's, it's like the same phenomenon of the get-rich-quick schemes, right? Like, everybody knows they never work. But every few years, there's some new multi-level marketing company that comes out, and a ton of people still jump on the bandwagon, it, right? It's like, that's just part of human nature, is, is this, if there's even a possibility that this is going to work, I'm going to take it. Fuck it, I'm doing it. <laughs> I could have a Lambo. <laughs> So real quick, guys, uh, let's actually let's go through the, the kind of the big three of the fat, popular fads. So what's a special claim behind paleo and what where does it fall apart? What's a special claim how keto works? Where does it fall apart? And where does what's a special claim behind intermittent fasting and where does it fall apart? If you can summarize that. <laughs> uh, I'll, let, I'll let Brad go first on that. I mean, so the whole claim behind the paleo is you know eat like our ancestors ate in kind of the area where our genome was forged. Um, pretty clearly that's just, that logic has not borne out in any of the, you know, the evidence that we've seen. Um, I mean, the other thing that you've got to realize is most of what falls under a paleo paradigm is just, you know, eating mostly unprocessed natural foods. Um, that kind of gets you 80% of the way. The extreme approaches of removing grains and nightshades and all that kind of stuff um, clearly has not borne out in the literature. So, I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's, you have this idea, you try to base a diet on evolutionary biology, and then you realize, yeah, we've actually evolved to be able to eat pretty much anything and survive, right? Like that's kind of what evolutionary biology actually is. Um, and so there's kind of this mismatch of the hypothesis versus what's actually happening. Um, so that's probably the big, the big one there. Wonderful. Yeah, and that's the thing is like people. I mean, what happens when people go on paleo? The reason it's working is typically what happens is their protein intake goes up. You know, they're relying more on whole foods and stuff. You know, less energy dense foods and things, and boom, they start to lose weight and think, oh, it's because I'm eating paleo. It's like, well, no, it's just some of the characteristics of your diet are you know very effective for weight loss, but it's got nothing to do with the fact that it's you know ancestral or anything like that. So. And then I guess keto, uh, same, yeah, same ish. <laughs> I don't know, falls apart almost the same place. I mean, keto was basically the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis of you know weight regulation, weight gain. Um, that's of all the hypotheses around diet that's been tested the most. That's probably one of them, um, and it's been you know basically from very basic molecular biology all the way through highly controlled mechanistic studies. To observational studies, interventional studies, they've all just been kind of knocked down one by one by one. And that that hypothesis just does not hold true across any level of, of analysis. 
Yeah, and, and um, to, to add to that too, what's funny is when it comes to keto, what cracks me up is people, it's like people talk about like keto some new thing. Keto's been around for, I mean, the Atkins diet was a keto diet and the Atkins was in the 70s. Like, like it just keeps making a comeback, but, you know, just under a different name. First, you know, it was the Atkins diet and then, then there was, you know, the protein power plan, which is, was essentially the same thing. Then people will just use the generic term low carb. And now people will say keto, but it's they're all just variations of the exact same thing. I heard, uh, I think it was yesterday, someone described something, I think it was protein plus or whatever, and it's the same fucking thing. It's keto all over again, just repackaged. So they're actually yeah. already repackaging keto into something slightly shifted. I think it started in Canada up in, the, <laughs> in Northwest Territories where there's no, there's just meat. And yeah, fat. And fat. Seal so, meat. So I'm going to go on record and say that. I don't okay. think science is going to prove that. Intermittent <laughs> fasting. Uh, I the, the problem with intermittent fasting is the goalpost has been moved so many times, right? It's like you don't really know what their, what their central claim is now. It's like at one point it was about regulating hormones for fat loss. Then it was longevity. Then it was just controlling calories. Um, so it – that's one of those ones that's just like hard to pin down because the whole purpose of it has shifted so much that I don't even know what the current iteration and what their claim is. I feel like it's all about autophagy now or something like that. That's what people are pushing now when it comes to fasting and like the what? So. Autophagy? Autophagy. Uh, oh. Autophagy. That? Like, like A U T O P H A G Y. Oh. So. so if you don't eat for a while, your cells clean themselves, basically. Oh, yeah. Fuck. <laughs> and I guess to summarize yeah, all Yeah, and if you really go a really long time without eating, your cells will clean themselves so well that they will basically just eventually rot away. <laughs> and I guess the, the summary, we've said this dozens of times all over this podcast in various forms, is really it's about the calories. And all of these three things, they tend to be very good when done well, at restricting calories, and that's really why they work when they work. I want one joke. Brad's autophasing. He's <laughs> cleaning quite well. You're like super clean right now. Except <laughs> uh, autophasing thought of like Star Trek. I, I know. Like, I, start talking about Star Trek. I had no idea what that word meant, so I was like... Okay, let's before we get on to like the hypertrophy stuff and the BMR stuff, let's just do one more nutrition thing. So basically fructose and more specifically high fructose corn syrup and kind of the claims that these, that they have special properties promoting body fat gain. Can you kind of just talk about where that idea came from and what's actually true about fructose? Yeah. So a lot of that just came from, uh, well, part of a lot of it came from like, uh, there was this one, uh, um, researcher, Peter Havel or whatever. He's done a ton of fructose research, particularly on rodents and stuff. And, and yeah, I mean, there's data showing like if you, feed rodents you know dramatically high doses of fructose you know they show lipid deposition on their liver and all this other you know bad health effects and stuff but but the problem is well there's there's two problems with that number one is that um, rodents have a much higher capacity for what we call de novo lipogenesis which is basically the conversion of uh, carbohydrates to fat than humans do I mean it's like it's not even comparable um, so you can't necessarily take rodent research and look at, you know, conversion of a particular carbohydrate and then try to infer that to humans. Um, and then the other thing is the doses of fructose that are usually used are just completely unrealistic and just way higher than what any humans ever actually consume. Um, you know, um, the, uh, 
I think the 97th and a half percentile in terms of fructose intake in the United States is around 100 grams per day. But we're talking, you know, if you look at even the human studies that use really high doses of fructose, they'll do like 150, 200 grams, like like just an insane level uh, of fructose. Um, and then when it comes to actual body fat gain, even there, you still got to consume more energy than you're expending. And, and in fact, there's a meta-analysis on fructose that showed that, you know, when they looked at the they, compared, they had um, trial ad libitum feeding trials where you know calories weren't controlled, and then they had controlled feeding trials. And you know when people were in energy balance, fructose did not contribute to fat gain any more than any other carbohydrate. But obviously, if you're overfeeding, then yeah, then you're going to gain fat just like you would you know if you're overfeeding any other macronutrient. So um, I'll let Brad uh, chime in on uh, his thoughts. Yeah, so all the human studies, um, the only ones that have shown any like real detriment in terms of fatty depositions in liver or changes in insulin sensitivity occurred at above 150 grams. Most of those were 200, 250. Uh, and the average intake for even like teenagers in the United States who drink them or who consume the most high fructose corn syrup is between 50 and 70 grams a day. Um, and so, you know, like James said, even the 97th percentile is just under 100. And anything under 100 grams a day doesn't have, from the data we've seen so far, doesn't have any negative metabolic effects. Whether you're looking at triglycerides, LDL, HDL, um, insulin sensitivity, any of that stuff. So in normal consumption, you're going to be fine. So let's, yeah, uh, let's provide some oh, context. I just wanted to oh, go add ahead, to you, that. You go ahead. Yep. Oh, yeah, just real quick. Um, and in fact, there's some data on people with diabetes that, you know, fructose in moderation may actually help with blood glucose control. So, um, oh. you know, but, but again, we're talking doses less than 100 grams per day. But I mean, that's uh, like I said, I mean, 100 grams per day, that's a lot of fructose. So How would that, uh, let's actually let's actually put that into context. So because I don't know these numbers off the top of my head, but you get these people and some prep coaches, especially are like, you can't eat fruit because it's going to make you fat. Okay, so how much, how many grams of fructose are in an apple or a banana or other general pieces of fruit? It's between 10 to 15 for like a, a big apple in terms of straight fructose. It's somewhere in that range. So you'd be having to eat seven, eight apples in a day. And no, and I don't think anybody's really doing that. So, yeah. so just for the people who are afraid to have a piece of fruit or two or three pieces of fruit a day, like... The fear of that is really Just ridiculous. Don't eat a bag of apples a day. Like that's crazy. That'd be hard, anyways. And honestly, there's so much fiber, and that'd be so bloody filling. You wouldn't want to eat anything what, else. So it's still what would be work. It was interesting there. What would be the reason why it helped some people? Would that just be like the insulin response from it? Like the like anything to do with phase uh, one or two? Like how does that play out? Well, not necessarily the insulin response, but fructose is a little bit different from other carbohydrates in that it, it, it essentially goes through the liver first. And so so the rise in blood glucose is just much smaller than with other carbohydrate sources. So, Not to mention there's also fiber in all so eat an apple a day. sources of fructose, so except like when you're drinking it as a fruit juice. So they had it right. Before one yeah, other quick, day, man. one other thing I wanted way. to throw in there too is you get people who are you know going for honey or agave because these are they have this idea that these are healthy natural things or they get organic agave. Um, where's the uh, where's the mistake in that? I mean it it doesn't matter. 
Like that's the mistake, right? If I mean, if you have, you know, high fructose corn syrup processed versus an agave, the the total met, net metabolic effect is virtually identical. Um, you, you're probably getting a few more micronutrients in your agave, but I mean, if you're eating a couple pieces of fruit and vegetables a day, you don't need to worry about your micronutrients from your your sweetener. <laughs> I mean, that's just is kind of absurd. It's like eating apple pie. What's agave? I, I'm maybe I, I like don't know anything today. What's agave? Have you ever had tequila? Yeah. 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 It's just the sugar from the te- from the agave. Plant. So just have tequila. It's problem solved. Doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What 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 cracks me up is the, is the people who consume agave are the same people that are afraid of fructose, and they don't seem to realize that agave is pretty much pure fructose. So it's like. Yeah. <laughs> It's got more fructose in it than high fructose corn syrup does. <laughs> See, learn something new. See, this this is great. This is actually this is, this is fantastic. why you get scientists together. They just know stuff. Good. <laughs> let's uh, let's pivot into something else. So, uh, James, quote: Not all reps are created equal. End quote. Now, that's an oversimplification of an article uh, found on your Weightology review, um, and we got to plug that because anybody who's not checking that out, uh, it's really amazing. Okay, so quantifying hypertrophic reps and hypertrophic load. Hopefully we don't lose anybody here. Uh, meaning, some reps are more effective in building muscle than others. Can you give a basic overview of how that works? Yeah, so, um, so, so you know, let's say you go into the gym and um, you just pick up a lightweight, really lightweight, and just do a few reps. I mean, that's not going to do anything, you know, Um um, you obviously got to train with some load and everything like that. But we also know that um, you can take a lightweight and, and and get about the same hypertrophy as you would if you trained with heavier weight as long as you take the sets to failure. So, for example, you can do sets of 10 to failure or you can do sets of 25 to failure. And the research is pretty clear that you're going to get the same hypertrophy um, between the same situations. But the sets of 25, you got to take them to near failure to actually get that result. You know, if you take a weight that you can do 25 reps with and you're stopping at rep 15, you're not going to get as much of a stimulus, which means that implies that some of the repetitions in that set have more of an effect than other repetitions. And that's why, you know, um, you see various terms for it. You know, uh, Bergay, uh, Fagerly has called them uh, effective reps. Um, I know Chris Beardsley called them stimulating reps. I kind of use the term hypertrophic reps. Um, and I want to say it's not like it's a, it's not a binary thing. It's not like a rep either causes hypertrophy or it doesn't. There's obviously a degree. Um, but, but if you're using moderate to light loads, um, the reps that are closer to failure fatigue will generally cause um, more hypertrophy than the reps that are further away from failure. So, I mean, there was actually one study that demonstrated this. This is on untrained subjects, but um, they had uh, divided people into two groups. The author was Goto, was the last name of the author. And so one group did sets of 10 to failure, like you normally would. The other group took the same load, um, did sets of 10, but they stopped at rep 5 and took a 30-second rest and then did the other five reps. So they're basically taking a break between each set. And the group that did their set straight to failure gained uh, actually about three times more muscle size than the group that took a 30-second break between their sets, meaning that, you know, that those, those um, you know, that, you know, in a 10-rep set, those last five reps or so um, are, are way more important for hypertrophy than the first five reps are. So... 
that intuitively makes a lot of sense. This is also something that's been around since probably, I think, the 60s and 70s. The old school bodybuilders, they got a lot of stuff right long before research validated. They got a lot of stuff wrong. But they were really keen in on, you know, pushing those sets again to failure and how those last couple of reps were the difference makers for building muscle mass. And that's, so that's a traditional belief I was always raised on, I suppose, in my formative education. You look like you went to failure a lot. <laughs> Brad, Brad takes a lot of breaks. Sorry. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even want to do that one. It was more of an end. Okay. <laughs> well done. I'm on fire today. Don't know any it's of the scientific okay. terms today. It's okay. I'll go, I'll go down hanging with these two for a month down in the in Washington State, and I'll, I'll, Brad's I'll get like, them I'm in the gym with me. And you guys will look like what's what's that Photoshop picture of Jonah Hill that's circulating around? It is Photoshop. Is, is it? Yeah, it's totally Photoshop. He's he's got himself in shape, but someone Photoshopped it, making him look pretty jacked. So <laughs> Brad's not Jonah Hill. <laughs> He'd been like Jonah Hill when he like was like when he like, had that eating disorder. They got the same hair. <laughs> I uh, my bank account definitely doesn't look like his. So no, that's true. You don't have internet money? <laughs> no, <What>? not yet. <laughs> I always go on your. We always refer back to our first podcast, but we talked after the show saying like one day when we get the internet money, we'll have we'll retire on a yacht. That still should be in the plans. I would say. Oh, yeah. We're just not quite there yet. No. And internet money, for anyone who wants... It came from South Park. That's the one where they're blowing up all the YouTube people, and they had the station where everyone from YouTube had to go collect their check for their internet money, because everyone blew up. Okay. And Brad does inter- YouTube videos. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, fuck. Hey, Brad. Let's get to the... You kind of calling out people now. Quote, BMR and RMR might be the most useless piece of data for most people who are striving for weight loss. Unquote. Can you kind of elaborate why you, you said that and explain explain it? Explain yourself, and then we'll hear James' thoughts. But basically, you called some people out. Well, I was just trying to point out... Useless piece of data ever. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. is Whenever you work with people, you have to think about the pieces of data that matter the most, right? When you talk about weight loss, the thing that really matters at the end of the day is total daily energy expenditure versus total daily calorie consumption. And total daily energy expenditure, you have things that you can control and you have things that you can't control, right? And BMR or resting metabolic rate is one of those things that 95% of it you can't control. Um, And even if somebody has a really low resting metabolic rate or a really high resting metabolic rate or somewhere in the middle, you don't change how you coach somebody based upon that, right? So the things that you can control you're neat, you're not exercise activity thermogenesis, so how much you move throughout the day. I mean, that makes up a huge piece of your total daily energy expenditure. And you can change that up to, you know, 10,000% a day if you can get a client motivated to do that. Um, their exercise, physical activity, you can get them to change that pretty robustly. Um, and then all the other things like how are you sleeping, how are you managing stress, all that kind of stuff. And the resting metabolic rate, you, I mean, let's say you start taking some drugs to increase it, you increase it 10-15%, um, it still doesn't move the needle as much as all the other pieces. And the problem that comes from resting metabolic rate is you will get a lot of people who you know don't have a lot of success dieting or with weight loss, and they get these resting metabolic rate data, and it comes back, they're like, oh, my resting metabolic rate is low, so I need to be you know, eating less food, I need to be doing all this stuff and I'm broken and I have all these issues. And it's like that test 
didn't tell you anything that you could take action on, and it just made you more susceptible to a negative narrative of yeah. what your journey is going to be. You, t you yes. rob the person of a little bit of the control over their fate, which is something I like to, to hammer on with clients. You, you empower people. You don't take things away from them. You talk, use the word broken, and I like this. I remember Brett Contreras in Kansas City in May did half his presentation on, he was fairly scathing about professionals who use a lot of language, painting people as being broken or dysfunctional or, or damaged. And making them feel like there's something wrong with them. And, and he made a big point about not using that kind of language and make people feel that way. And I actually agree with that. I thought it was really well said. And since he crystallized that thought, I tend to lean in that direction as well. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, if you were working with somebody who wanted to be a power lifter and they had, you know, horrible leverages, like they had really long femurs, um, you know, really long arms, you wouldn't be like, hey, well, your legs are really long, so your squat's always going to suck, um, and you just probably shouldn't be a power lifter. Like, that's not how you solve that problem, right? What are the things you can control? Like, what's your frequency of your training? What type of form adjustments can we make? How much food are you eating? Like, all that kind of stuff. Question. If someone came to you, and they're super small, like short legs, wasn't that fast, wasn't that strong, he's like, I want to go to the NFL, Brad. Like... <laughs> It's going to happen no matter what. What are you telling him? Um, like, it's your kid. And he's going to throw his whole life away. Like, he's like, he's like, I listen, man, I'm going to give up everything for this. I'm not going to follow in your footsteps to be a scientist. I'm going to be a football player. And, like, what would you tell him? I would say you're going to have a very large uphill battle, and you need to be open to the possibility of, of failure. Um, and you may fail, and that's okay. Like, give it everything you got. If you fail, you fail. You can move on to the next thing. Good. I think, I think that's a great and way my, of like even like, but that's the way you answer it, especially with that. Yeah. People like, there's no fucking chance your kids go in the NFL, Brad. Like, look at you. Muggsy Bogues but. did. <laughs> Muggsy Bogues did have a very successful NBA career, and he was five foot three. That's true. So. That's what I mean. Outlier that goes back to there's outliers. Like on the other end of that spectrum, though, that number can make people almost feel like they don't have to do as much. You ever see any of that? Because like on the other end, people think they're broken, but if you have good BMR and RMR, they're like, yeah, I'm like good. I don't have to do anything. But it's still like, what's your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, it, anything cuts both ways, right? I mean, so you can have somebody who's just their RMR is 3,500 calories a day, which would be, I don't know who would have that, but it's possible. Um, and they wouldn't really have to do anything. But that still doesn't, I mean, if they came to me and said, all I care about weight management, I'd be like, okay, well, this is something. But if they're like, hey, I have all these other goals, that's really not going to dictate all the other variables of how you think about it. Other than person has a high metabolism, they're going to need more food, could have figured that out without having a resting metabolic rate anyway. Good point. Do you think it's just a way for coaches to kind of force buy-in almost with negative, I guess, tests? Does that make sense? Because like what we're talking about, most people in our realm don't use that stuff. Like they use the big hammers, but then there's the other side who will use stuff like that to make people feel broken. So they have to pay money to get better. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in certain niches um, and you know, I'm, in, I'm interested to hear James's perspective too, but I think a lot of, a lot of people with practices really look for that narrative, right? Like we have a lot of clients who come to us with tests from their naturopath of like yeah. all these food insensitivities, the resting metabolic rate is low, they can't digest X, they have 
15 autoimmune diseases and they just spent $15,000 on like tests to tell them all this stuff. And it's like, well, I don't know if, if somebody comes to you struggling with their health, is like that the optimal approach? Like, obviously, you have to do a differential, but there's also some level of things that you just don't, you shouldn't be doing with people. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, when I've, I'm, I'm usually just straight up with my clients because I've had clients come to me with that. Like, yeah, they'll say, well, th this test said I had all these food allergies. And I usually just be straight up with them and just say, that test is bullshit. Like, I may not necessarily use those exact words <laughs> with them, but like, um, you know, because a lot of those, you know, food allergy tests are based on, you know, blood um, IgG testing or whatever, which is totally worthless. Like, it doesn't actually mean anything. So, um, um, so usually I'll just be straight up with the client, you know, uh, and usually I just, I'm very factual with them. I'll just say, you know, if, if a client says to me, oh yeah, my metabolism is low and let's say they, let's say they had the resting metabolic rate tested and it was, let's say on the low end, um, I'll just go into all the reasons why it doesn't matter, including plenty of data showing there's no relationship between resting metabolic rate and weight loss success. I mean, there's like zero relationship there. Uh, so, um, and I'll even use the example of myself with those people. I'll actually tell people, like, listen, um, last time I haven't had my resting metabolic rate tested for years, but the one time I did have it tested, I had a slow metabolism. I talked this up in my neat talks. Like, I had a slow metabolism. Like, and I'm the person that everyone looks at and says, oh, you must have a fast metabolism. I'm like, I don't. I, I seriously don't. Like, it's actually on, at least last, the one time I had it tested, it was actually on the slow side. So, um, so there's just absolutely zero relationship there, um, uh, when it comes to metabolic rate and weight loss success. Let's go into something we were joking about, uh, before we got on air and how you two both have reputations as the true nice guys in the industry. Uh, Brad won't fight back at all the various I'm waiting for it. That <laughs> I'll fucking kill you, Matt, if you come at me. <laughs> and, and, and our industry doesn't always reward or celebrate uh, the nice people. You know, you mentioned someone like Lyle McDonald, who I guess who has a reputation for, be, for bombast and whatever. He seems to be doing quite well. Would you each speak uh, to how you've won out in the long run by being ethical, uh, good to people? And were there chances along the way where you could have cut corners uh, or not always been so nice uh, in your career and in your interactions with others? Yeah, I mean, there's so many opportunities to always take the shortcuts, the easy paths, kind of the jump into the the mob mentality and a lot of things. Um, you know, my approach has always been, if I care more about the work and more about the clients and more about the people than I do about my own ego, and I kind of make my decisions based on that, you know, having the persona of the nice guy just kind of comes along with it, right? Just doing the right thing for the right people is what we're in here to do, right? I mean, I think a lot of people will go into this because it's they can make a name for themselves, they can become popular, they can, you know, have some sort of clout or become an iconoclast or something, but that's not what, that's not the reason we do what we do, right? And if you kind of if you really put the reasons of why you do what you do and you put the work first, um, the rest of it pretty much comes along the ride. You know, the other thing too about, you know, cutting corners and stuff is I would say in 98% of situations, 
when you have to make a tough decision, there's always one right decision that pops out, right? And you kind of know what the right thing is. Um, and then there's just varying shades of, of wrong. You know, some are a little less wrong than the others. And you kind of usually know what the right, the, the right call is. Yeah, so I'll, I'll add uh, to, to that myself too. It's like um, part of it is with me is um, the thing I hate about online is a lot of people will act differently online than they would in person and they will treat people online totally differently than the way they would treat them in person. And I try to be consistent and I always try to think about, you know, if I'm going to type something online or I'm going to you know, say something online, is this the way that I would talk to this person if I was actually in person with them? Um, cause, cause trust me, I mean, I, I mean, I will get fucking pissed off sometimes at, <laughs> at the shit that goes on online all the time, but I just, I have to think about if this was all happening and people were in a room, how, how would it be, you know, how would it be different, yeah. you know? And so, um, I mean, you know, the, the recent situation with, you know, Lyle going off on Brad and I, you know, Brad Schoenfeld's study and, and the study I did with Brad Schoenfeld, um, that was a perfect example because I, let me tell you, I was tempted to say a lot of comments and I was like, but I was like, you know what? Uh, I, I, you know, and there were a few times where I did sneak in some sarcastic comments, stuff like that, but I was like, you know what? I'm just going to totally stick with the facts and, and just, you know, and actually I had a lot of people commending me on that. They were like, Wow, I'm really impressed with how you actually, you know, were, were, you know, responding with class and stuff like that. And it was just because, like, but it wasn't to appear like I was responding with class. It was just like, how would I, how, you know, again, how would I act, you know, I'm just like, stick with the facts, stick with the evidence, you know, and, and let people decide for themselves, you know. So I, I like um, that though, like the whole, like, I'm thinking of a few situations of the last month, but how would these arguments, play out in real life and not the like say hey would blow up but i think a lot of people would act a lot less aggressive in person like you'd probably be that guy saying sarcastic comments every once in a while but you wouldn't be yeah. in someone's face you motherfucker this and that and yeah, it's almost yeah. like crazy yeah. how some of these things blow up and that's not the people you meet in person and like that's again just not consistent so then people see that and then they i don't want to say judge you but you're going to build a bad following that's not true to who you are if that makes sense. You're also going to attract a lot of negative attention and you're going to be constantly caught in this loop of responding to that negative attention. Nick Tuminello did a really good job when we were all at that conference in Spokane about how he doesn't respond to trolls and negativity, certainly not publicly because he reinforced the fact that that's then the vehicle by which to get your attention and information yeah. from you. He instead devotes his attention to uh, his followers, the people who pay for his services but he will engage in, you know, if someone he respects up here, if there's a disagreement, he'll actually get on the phone with them and actually have that conversation in intellectual and respectful capacity. Uh, I think Nick is a little bit more enlightened than, uh, you know, some of the people in our industry, but again, you know, one of the nice guys. Well, even to go back to like, we have a lot of fitness professionals looking at this and like, we kind of talked about this before, but what you put on social media in like type four or even emails or PMs. Like that shit doesn't usually go away, especially if the other person's trying to goad you into saying something like the, screenshots now are like a thing where you can delete your comment and there's already 10 people that screenshot your shit that you've retracted. And so like, it's almost like nothing sacred anymore in terms of that. So you got to, I don't want to say you got to watch your tongue because if you're that person, you're that person. But if, if you're saying some shit that's, that's not necessarily you, it's, it's probably not going to go away. 
Yeah. And yeah. I think the, the bigger discussion too comes down to a level of professionalism, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. If we want to move a field forward, you have to be a professional, right? And I was I was talking to Greg Knuckles the other day, um, and I was kind of making this comment, you know, of one, if you are a professional and you're a public figure, you need to behave professionally whenever you're visible, right? Whether that's online, whether that's when you're at a conference with people, um, that doesn't mean you can't be relatable and you, you can't have conversations and you can't do things, but if you want to bring a level of esteem and professionalism to, you know, an industry, you have to be the person to lead that change, right? You can't rely on other people to do that. And I think there is, you know, a level of decorum you need to have in your discussions online, in person, interactions with, you know, your own clients, all sorts of things. And I think a lot of people don't, I think a lot of people get up in the ego trip of I have to win this conversation versus how do I be a professional whenever I'm public facing Hmm. Was, it, was it was it Greg who talked about that when on our podcast? Yeah, actually, like, like basically, instead of talking at them and try to win the argument, like the psychology behind structuring an argument, you can make it look professional and probably still Jedi mind trick them. And Greg, Greg Knuckles yeah, yeah. may <laughs> have presented one of the best segments that we've ever had on any podcast, specifically about arguments on the internet and why it doesn't work. Uh, if anyone's really interested, or as follows Greg. And you want to go back and check that one out? That fuck isn't. But even if you want to see like a master at arguing and most likely winning, or at least getting a lot of blank responses, is him because he'll like <laughs> he's super nice, super smart, and the way he structures it, like he doesn't get the responses. Like no one calls Greg out. Maybe it's just because he's smarter than him. I don't know. Maybe. I'm trying to think of all the scientists and who's the smartest. But well, there's ego there. I'm sure. Just to but he'd be up there. I think he'd be up there. Just to sort of summarize, too, I find myself, for the most part, gravitating towards the nice guys and girls in the industry as people I followed for a long time. Uh, we always got to sneak Dean Somerset in here somewhere, so he's a really good example of someone who just generally presents a really nice guy persona. You guys are great. There's maybe one or two exceptions, and I, I always really enjoyed Lane Norton. And Lane, actually, by all accounts, is one of the nicest people ever, but his public persona tends to skew away from that. He's a little bit more of a warmonger on his Twitter account, but uh, I find that greatly entertaining, too. Well, maybe if Brad deadlifted 600 pounds, he'd be a little more aggressive. I actually like Brad a lot, by the way. It, it just, I don't, you remind me of someone I played football with. It was just like, like you can't be cracked. Like, just, I just want to see you get mad. My, uh, my wife, one of the first like times we ever had like any sort of disagreement was because I wasn't flustered by something that she was flustered by. And she's like, I don't understand why you're not upset. And I was like, I, you know, what's funny is, is, is my wife is the same way. I, I was, there, there have been some times where like, she's just been really upset about something and I'm just like totally stoic about it. Um, just, you know, do you think it's that and, science and then she, process? Like, takes it, she takes it like, I don't care. I'm like, it's not that I don't care. It's just like, I just, you know, it just doesn't, I just don't get the same, you know, I don't know. Do you think it's the, the science training? And I know you guys go through a method and stuff, but like that's kind of where your brain's at and why you thrive there. Does that kind of make you think a little bit slower about things? Like, you know what I mean? Like you think through things almost so you don't end up saying stupid shit because you're not as reactive. Like you want to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's part of it. I think also, you know, I had a lot of stuff go on in my childhood that was pretty hard to deal with. Yeah. So kind of everything else just seems like, a toned down version of that. Um, and the other thing is, 
whenever I've been upset about something, I've never solved the problem. Yeah. Right. So it's like whenever something happens, it's like I just want to solve the problem. And I can best do that by like detaching, thinking about it, realizing everything has a solution and then just trying to solve it and then just move on. Never yep. solved anything bad. <laughs> the, the, the thing about that, though, is kind of funny. That, um, I'm kind of the same way. I, I like to be solve the problem. But that also tends to sometimes be a detriment if it's something that like I'll have a tendency to ruminate on something that I really don't have a whole lot of control over sometimes, you know, like uh, um, where something will just be in my head and that I don't have a lot of, you know, uh, you know, obviously the the recent situation that happened with, you know, a person that's, you know, yep. we all yep. are friends with and things like that. Um, you know, I was on vacation when that happened and but it was constantly in the back of my mind. And it was like, even though it was something that I really had no control over, like that part of my brain, that problem solving part of my brain was kind of going on it, even though I couldn't actually, there wasn't really anything I could do to solve the problem, you know? So, um, so it, it, it's, it's a good thing to have. And yeah, I tend to, I, I tend to, um, hold back my first reaction until I've kind of really processed things. Um, but sometimes things just keep processing, and I can't stop the processing, you know, so. Yeah, that was a big unfortunate situation. And, well, I mean, we may as well allude to it at least somewhat directly. Um, obviously, there's been some events surrounding Alan Aragon in our industry. And um, I don't want to get into depth of it here because it's easy enough to find out online to see what happened. So, uh, Brad, you were obviously at a conference. You're talking about doing the right thing. And I know that you had to act in that situation. And it was a difficult situation. And, and I know that you ultimately did the right thing in that situation. Again, we shouldn't make this episode about that particular incident because it's, again, easy to find out a lot more about it. But, yeah, what a bad week in our industry. But that, the, but that goes back to that whole thing of, like, you, you basically explain, like, just, you know the fucking right answer and just do it. And I guess the more you act on it, now you get this good guy persona. But you didn't ask for that. You're just a good guy. And then that almost breeds the business and the mentality that you want to follow anyway. So it's almost a win-win in your scenario. Like, just do you. Be nice. And, like, now things are thriving. Well, I mean, I think the thing is, those situations are always a lose-lose. Yeah. Right? Um, and in hindsight, you can say it's a win-win, however you want to describe it. But anytime you're put in a situation like that, you always have to realize that there, there's a right answer. Yeah. There's a lot of wrong answers. Um, a lot of parties, there will be... Um, you know, a lot of loss, a lot of hurt, there will be some good. Um, and you just, you have to make the decision that's right, no matter, no matter how much it is. And, you know, a lot of things that people won't, won't realize is there's 90 million possibilities of the way it's going to unfold once you do something right. And you can look back and say, okay, you know, things unfolded the right way, but you never know exactly how it's going to go. Right. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that's one of the lessons that I think a lot of people can learn, especially from situations like that, is you just you make the right call and the chips are going to fall where they're going to fall. And more often than not, if you make the right call, they're going to fall in your favor. And if they don't, at least you have the integrity to go back on. To, to put some later note on that before we get to our book question, it's, it's very similar to The Last Avengers when Doctor Strange went through a million possibilities and he turned back the time. <laughs> And like, you don't, he's like, and then afterwards, he's like, did you know it was going to happen? He's like, oh, it was a little bit of a, like, he didn't know, but he knew all the possibilities <laughs> and made the choice and it still didn't work out. Cause it's just kind of, 
you don't know, but you can do your best to make the right choice. And I think you're Doctor Strange. Well, we've got, we've got. Oh, go ahead, you go first. I was just going to say, it was kind of, was kind of, just also add some light on this situation. So, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, good friends with Patrick Humphrey. You know, so. Andrew is obviously the jacked version of Patrick. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, uh, so all this, everything that was happening was happening when I was on vacation, and I didn't have much internet access and stuff like that. And uh, and also the stuff that happened with Lyle happened when I was on vacation. Oh, and so it's like the whole internet was just blowing up when I was on vacation. And so when I get back, and Patrick was like. Patrick told me, he goes, okay, well, next time you go on vacation, just tell everybody so we can make sure everyone gets off the internet when you're on vacation, you know? <laughs> like, wait, wait, wait for James. What, we need a ringer. What a dirty mess of a week that was. Holy shit. So let's let's go. And, uh, James, I know you got to go real quick, so we can start with you if you have to bounce. Uh, what are you guys reading lately? Anything new or noteworthy? Anything to share? We've asked you guys each for this on your individual podcasts, but uh, you got anything new? I'll let Brad. Yeah, um, I'm. Uh, I'm actually almost finished with a book called uh, "Hit Refresh." It's written by the current CEO of Microsoft, who came in um, and tried to turn around kind of a dying culture um, at Microsoft. So, um, mostly reading it because it's relevant to a lot of the work I'm doing um, in the the company that I, I co-own. Um, as we're trying to, you know, shift from that dog's adorable. Yeah, there's a dog on. <laughs> My dog uh, came up to me, and I know Brad likes doodles, so sorry to cut you off. She's on the table. Yeah, that's been really good. It just, you know, it talks a lot about how, you know, culture really influences the entire direction of either an organization or a company or whatever. And if you if you need to change that, how do you change that, right? Because that's kind of like you go outside and it's raining and you go, how do I make it sunny today, right? Like you don't even know where to start. So whenever you have stuff like that, it's always a good – you know, good tools to apply. James, so, what about you? Um, so I haven't really been re. Uh, it's like I never. I, I rarely read books anymore because it seems like whenever I'm reading, I'm either reading journal articles or, um, and if I'm not reading, it's like I'm trying to handle my kids and everything else. So, so I, I haven't really. I can't say I've been reading anything new. Um, really, right now, my life has just been working on various projects and. Uh, and also just uh, trying to handle two young kids. Any good movies? So. Like a movie you've seen? <laughs> we opened that up for uh, Lee Boys, so we might as well do a movie maybe. You have to watch movies uh, of kids. The last, uh, last, geez, I haven't even watched much movies. You know, the um, last movie I saw in the theater was uh, um, was the Solo, Han Solo movie. So, um, uh, Didn't hear good things. I, I enjoyed the solo movie. I thought I just think it got uh, I think they released it at a bad time. Um, you know, it was too they shouldn't. They, I mean, they released it right around the Avengers movie and, yeah. and all these, you know, and the Jurassic Park and everything. It was just like so I think the timing was horrible. And I think a lot of people were still pissed off at the last Jedi movie. Yeah. And so um, so a lot of fans were pissed off about that. Um, really, they should have just done their typical December release. Yeah. Um, I think they. I think it probably would have gone over a lot better. So, um, but I, I don't know. I I enjoyed it. But it's always risky when you take a very iconic character played by one particular individual yeah. and completely yeah. define the role, and then you have to recast it uh, in such a way. 
uh, what the fuck is a good example of that? I was thinking, oh, can you imagine like trying to recast Wolverine, Indiana Jones. someone who is oh, not yeah, Hugh yeah, Jackman, yeah. Indiana Jones, same actor, try to redo it, didn't work. Yeah, yeah this, yeah, yeah. Um, cool. cool. Okay, before you got to go, um, where where's the easiest place to find you on social media and kind of your website? Where's the easiest place to consume you? We'll let James go first if you got to go. Um, yeah, so uh, my website's waytology.net, W-E-I-G-H-T-O-L-O-G-Y.net. Um, I've got a research review on there um, that, uh, um, that I know, you know Andrew's a member of. Yep. Um, and uh, I've got uh, – I do some online coaching. I know all my podcast appearances on there. I've got a bunch of free content on there as well. Um, and all my social media accounts are on there, you know, so you know people can follow me um, on there. And also all, all the research studies that I've been involved in, I got a list of my publications on there as well. So, you know, anyone interested in actually nerding out and reading some of the research we've done. There's like 200. Like, I think there's maybe more. (laughs) I'm going to look that as like, holy I wish it, I wish it was 200. (laughs) It was a lot. There was like four pages at least. (laughs) That's your job, I guess. Brad. Um, you can find me at all the usual channels. No, I'm just kidding. You can really only find me on Facebook. I don't use Instagram. Oh. I deleted Twitter because it was a cesspool of a place to be. Um, all my, all my blog writing is on science driven nutrition, but, uh, the best place to probably get a hold of me is through each perform. That's where, uh, I'll be living for the next several decades of my life probably. So, uh, you can email me, you can find me on Facebook. I'm, I'm pretty reachable. I like t- talk about your your YouTube videos. I thought they were awesome. Yeah, like, yeah. We've been putting some of those out. Um, well, I was I was been traveling the last three weeks, so I haven't been able to do a few. But we have a, an each perform YouTube channel that has some some video content. So um, you can go for the science, or you can go to look at the dog. Yeah. Either one, it works. Life in the day of great. Guys, thanks so much for coming on here. We really appreciate it. Uh, it was great to have you both back. I will almost certainly be coming down to see you guys if you're both at uh, in Spokane. In a- I guess with- if Tim does it again in April, I know he's planning another one. He's got all lined up. And I think I'll go do. And we'll, we'll see you in Costa Rica, bud. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We're going to lift there. So hopefully you got a training <laughs> regime to get... And if anybody's finding this uh, episode for the first time through either Brad or James or even ours, uh, we've each had them on the podcast before. Their episodes are super. You may want to check out more of what they've got. And yeah, we've mentioned a few other things like the Greg Knuckles episode is a really super one for anyone who's probably got similar kind of interests to what, uh, you know, what Brad and, and James often work with. So guys, thanks so much. And guys, thanks for tuning in. Peace. Shut up and sit down.